everyone. Welcome back to On Biblical Scholarship. My name is Eric Roseberry. I'm a pastor in Lafayette, Indiana, and a New Testament PhD student at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Joining me today is Dr. Daniel Gertner. He currently serves as an affiliate uh, at the Center for the Study of Judaism and Christianity in Antiquity through St. Mary's University, London, and he's the author of Introducing the Pseudepigrapha of Second Temple Judaism, Message, Content, and Significance. Dr. Gertner, how are you doing today? Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on. And uh, I guess uh, just kind of jumping right into it, when you think about your own academic journey, what was it that first interested you in biblical studies? Uh, well, I became a Christian in a classroom, ironically. Okay. Um, I was saved as a as a uh, a freshman in a Bible, well, at a, at a uh, Christian college. And I was taking general education classes and learning learning the Bible as a new Christian. And so for me, my walk of faith and my academic study of the Bible were all part of the same thing. I never really read the Bible before, wasn't really raised in a Christian context. So to me, my growth in faith in Christ and my academic study of the Bible were just two sides of the same coin. At what point did the thought enter your head uh potentially doctoral studies and PhD work. Where was that in the process? Pretty, pretty early on within about a year or two years, I started to think more about full-time ministry and knew it would be academic ministry. I I hadn't thought more about where that would lead beyond getting a a master's degree. So I eventually went, went for my MDiv at Gordon-Conwell. But uh, pretty early on, I recognized that the classroom was the crucible for me. Okay. Okay. And then you end up at St. Andrews eventually, uh, working with Richard Bauckham. Uh, what was it that drew you to St. Andrews? Were you looking at any other places? What helped make that decision? Well, what really, the, the advice that I got, I talked to many people, um, about where to go for PhD and, and how to make that decision. And the, the most common advice that I got was to try to figure out what you wanted to do and then find who the best person in the world to study with. And that subject area. And so the fact that it was St. Andrews was, it just happened that that's where Richard Bauckham was. It didn't, I, I loved St. Andrews, but I didn't go there in, in, in the ideal model. You don't go, you don't choose your university based on where you want to go to school. You choose who you want to study with because that's the most important relationship. And so I, I went there to study with Richard Bauckham. And that was largely because I was working in, uh, in Jewish apocalyptic in, in study of the New Testament. So, and every, actually one of the people who suggested me was, uh, that I work with Richard Bauckham was Dale Allison. Okay. Um, cause I went to talk to him about studying with him and he, he suggested I go study with Richard Bauckham. Oh, okay. And I'm curious so, from, from that time you had with Dr. Bauckham, what are a few of the, the lessons you took just from having him, uh, oversee your research for a few years? Well, one is, uh, he was, um, or he is remarkably encyclopedic. Um, with a phenomenal memory. He, he read my dissertation off and on whenever he was having some health issues of his own. And uh, he, he read it while he was on uh, traveling to the States. And um, he had nothing but a Bible with him in my dissertation. And he was making comments all over my dissertation about uh, primary and secondary sources that I need to consult, including page numbers of commentaries in Leviticus, uh, original language text and things like that, all from memory. He had no wow. books with him, but that. Um, so it really instilled in me a sense of real uh, breadth of reading and learning uh, well outside my primary area. And uh, 
Also, the and this this has more to do with probably a British context in general, but him in particular, of um, a, a, a great deal of humility and um, a, a desire to contribute to learning rather than just producing scholarship for scholarship's sake. Mm-hmm. Uh, so writing when you actually have something to say and not writing just because you want to write something. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, that's that, helpful. That, those were. Yeah, that could be a good approach uh, for. For more people to take, but I'm curious. So as you go through that process, you're learning from him, you're working on your dissertation. What are a few of the lessons you took uh, just from the process of writing your dissertation and working on a project of that scope? Personal lessons for yourself, maybe the research-oriented things you learned. What kind of stuck with you from that project? Well, as as most people recognize in writing their dissertation, you, you sort of think that that is your magnum opus and that's that that as soon as you're done with that, then all of a sudden... You can sort of check that off the box and move on with life. Um, and I really, I mean, like everybody, I struggled to get it done. I had a lot of doubts and fears and uncertainties about whether it was good enough and whether it was going to pass and all those sorts of things. And that's natural. And everybody has that. You have setbacks and uh, and changing things within your dissertation and so forth. But I really learned that through that process, and again, this is largely in British model, that rather than it being my my the capstone of my academic career, it was really the starting point. Mm, yeah. And so I learned a lot of skills about critical thinking skills and research about um, some of a lot of my presuppositions being thrown out the window, um, and, and rightly so. Um, but it really it 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 forced me to learn a set of skills for research and writing that are transferable to a lot of different things. Mm. So my dissertation is in New Testament, but I've also published in the book you just mentioned is in Second Temple Judaism. Yeah. That, that's by no means a primary field for me, but I can get into fields that are not my primary field, not because I have the training in that field, but because I have training in critical thinking and research skills yeah. that is transferable to other fields as well. I'm curious, uh, with your own writing and research and the things you're producing, are there a few ways you've practically set up your life to try and ensure you're able to to give focused attention to those things? Yeah, there's there's been a lot of things. One one is uh, these last two years, I I have a lot of time because I've been I've been unemployed. I've been laid off due to yeah. COVID for two years, so I I've been on a two year sabbatical. So that that helps. Um, my my schedule. I'm doing a lot of teaching online, a lot of part time work, but my schedule is largely my own. Okay. Um, but I'm also juggling several writing projects at once. The main one is I'm writing the word biblical commentary on Matthew, mm. and um, that's the massive one that's going to take a lot of time. And I'm I just finished chapter four, verse eleven, so I'm done with that section. And for major projects, I make sure that I have some time every day, even when I have a really busy day. I have a lot of things to do. I have family responsibilities. I have work responsibilities or various other things. I make sure I at least get a little bit of time um, to to sort of kick that can down the road a little bit. Yeah. Um, on a day-to-day basis, sometimes 20 minutes doesn't seem like much, but if you do 20 minutes a day for five days, you've made a little bit of progress. Sure. Um, and also it helps, as, as you know, in writing a dissertation, when you're doing research that is very focused, um, if you step out of it for a few days or for too long, it takes a lot of time to get back into it. Mm, yeah. Um, so if you can commit, if I, I find that committing some time every day, I usually give two, maybe three hours a day to the commentary. Um, 
that enables me to go back to it the next time being very fresh and knowing exactly where I left off um, as opposed to taking some time off. Um, And so that, that has been a real, a real learning curve for me. Uh, And then I do various other things through the rest of my day with mostly with various other writing projects, smaller articles and reviews and those sorts of things. But the main thing is um, keep the main project on, on the front burner at all times. I'm curious with a project like, doing the word biblical commentary on Matthew, how do you even begin or set up to approach uh, a project of that size and scope? Yeah, it's, it, it has uh, a lot to do with reading the, the first edition uh, by um, Don Hagner. Mm. And I've, I've been using his commentary for many years. Yeah. I spoke with him personally. He's given me some great advice um, and, and seeing sort of the layout and the setup of how, how that commentary works, how that series works. And also what it is I bring to the table. Um, I, I decided early on that I'm not going to I'm not going to rehash what other commentaries have had to say. Mm. Um, there is so much that's written out there. I'm reading very widely, but the majority of what I read it never finds its way into the commentary. So what I'm trying to do is to give a very close reading of the text, um, much less, and this will frustrate some readers. Must let much less speculation on theological implications and ecclesiastical implications, and much more focus on the text in its in its first century context. Mm-hmm. So I bring some of the work in Second Temple Judaism and my familiarity with with contemporary Jewish texts to bear on my exegesis. But ultimately, it's a commentary on the text and not a commentary on what people think the text might say. Yeah. Um, so I, there's a lot that's left out, but. Uh, my focus is what I've said is my goal is I'm trying to explain what the words on the page mean. Mm. Um, and so that sometimes familiarity is my biggest obstacle. I think I know what it says. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the more you dig, the more you realize that's not exactly what it says or you think you know what it means. Right. And so you find out over time that really that's not even what he's talking about at all. Yeah. Um, so that, that's that's created some of a learning curve. But to answer your question, how do you even begin um, I'm starting, started today on 4, 12 through 25, and I'm trying to make sure I'm not just rehashing, um, you know, the Metzger's textual commentary on, um, deciding on variants, but I have a clear methodology for assessing variants that is based largely on reasoned eclecticism. Um, so I'm starting at some of the, those foundational levels and even looking at some manuscript features, um, and then building off of, that to do grammatic, largely grammatical historical exegesis. You mentioned kind of the focus on not focusing too much on secondary literature on the, or in the commentary. Do you think that might be a, a trend moving forward is just so much is written on every conceivable topic. People are just going to have to decide. I can't pay attention to all of it. And I'm going to be focused in my approach to this. Well, I think, I think by just the practicality of it, it would, it, I could spend the rest of my life just reading everything on Matthew and oh, trying wow. to incorporate it into this commentary. The, the trick to balance, I think, is that, that I'm trying to balance is number one, I'm trying to give a fresh reading of the text. And number two, I'm trying not to be so arrogant as to assume that I'm coming up with, with meanings and understandings that nobody else has had before. Right. So I want to learn. And so I want to read a lot of commentaries. Usually I read the commentaries. The, the, my my favorite commentaries are to read are those uh, knowing that I'll disagree with the authors. Mm. So I'll read Ulrich Lutz and I read Davies and Allison a lot. Those are my primary dialogue partners. And I disagree with a fair amount, 
but they know they have mastered the primary source material and they've studied Matthew for much longer than I have. And so I want to learn, I want to be a better exegete by being in dialogue with scholars with whom I disagree. So you have to be selective, but also you don't want to presume that you're going to come up with new things. So I I have a handful of commentaries that are my go-to dialogue partners, Davies and Allison and Ulrich Lutz being first and foremost among them. Yeah, those are good ones to choose, I think. So uh, I'm curious, uh, the book you put out, Introducing the Pseudepigrapha, uh, what led to you uh, wanting to write on that topic? You mentioned it was a little outside of your field. What prompted that as a project? It's well outside my field. <laughs> it's, <laughs> yeah. it's I, I have no training in that whatsoever. Yeah. Um, it was mostly that I, I felt like, and, and part of my reason for, you know, I've done other things in Second Temple Judaism. I did uh, co-edited the Encyclopedia of Second Temple Judaism with right. T&T Clark. Um, which both of those are, again, outside of my primary field. But what I wanted to do is really educate myself, hoping that I get some opportunity to work on a substantial work on Matthew. I want to educate myself in the language and literature of uh, Second Temple Judaism uh, as, as a means of contextual exegesis of the Gospel of Matthew. What I don't want to do is... Um, interpret Matthew in light of his Judaic context and have no credibility in working in that Judaic context itself. Um, I don't want to know just enough about Second Temple Judaism to make ignorant and misleading comments about its bearing on the text. I want to really know the material and and know the scholarship or at least have access to it so that I can make informed um, use of it in my interpretation of Matthew. So really for me, it was all preparatory work for uh, for Matthew. Okay. Um, but also in terms of the need for the book, I, I recognize that, that there was nothing out there on the pseudepigrapha yeah. that most students, including doctoral students really didn't know what that literature was. Um, and there's also a lot of misconception and that's still ongoing about what it means to be uh, pseudepigraphical writing. Um, and what there, there's an intention of deception and all this kind of stuff that is just, uh, and the Charlesworth volumes that there's some kind of canon of the pseudepigrapha that, that there really isn't. So there's just a lot of misunderstanding. And I thought there was a need for some kind of substantial and, and robust introduction to that material, uh, somewhat analogous to what David De Silva did for the Old Testament Apocrypha. Right. Um, mine is a little bit more technical than his is, and it covers more literature, but um, it, it's it's supposed to sort of be uh, between those two, between uh, De Silva's book and mine, um, can really get an understanding of texts that are are not commonly understood um, by students of the Bible or by historians or people wanting to study uh, ancient literature and antiquity, regardless of your faith perspective. Yeah, I definitely recommend it. It's on my shelf. It's been super helpful as a doctoral student to have uh, access to that volume. So thank you for writing that. We appreciate it. Uh, Maybe turning to a little of uh, advice now. I'm sure from time to time you've had students come to you. I'm thinking about doing a PhD. I'm not sure if this is the right thing for me. Are there a few pieces of general advice you give someone who's starting to ask that question? Yeah, it, it really depends on the person, what they want to do with it. Now, in in my circles, I'm an evangelical Christian. And so I, I want to talk, if I have inquiries from students saying, I'm a, I'm a pastor and I'm thinking about doing a PhD, is this right for me? Uh, I'll, I'll always ask about, well, why do you want to do it? Um, and what is it you want to get from it? Um, and in the hopes of sort of flushing out 
maybe there are some misunderstandings about what you can do with a PhD, that yeah. as soon as you get those three letters after your name, all of a sudden people will be knocking on your door to have you come teach. Yeah. Um, and, and if it's, if it's something like, you know, I get a fair amount of inquiries of students saying, I, I just want to continue to be a pastor and I want to do it better. Uh, in that respect, that's great. And so, yeah, that can be something to really do and, and, and do well to enhance preaching and teaching. Um, so I think the first thing I, I, I fish for is this, the student's motivation and especially what they want to do with it. If a student comes to me and says, I want to be, uh, I want to get a PhD and I want to be teaching at Yale University or, or Duke Divinity School or something like that, we have a very different conversation than somebody who is a full-time pastor who lives in Indiana and they want to, and they want to stay in Indiana and have a family and a church home and they want to continue pastoring and they may or may not ever publish anything beyond a handful of book reviews or something like that. And that's just not, not what they want to do. Right. And that's fine. But it really depends on if the student has thought, if they haven't thought we need to talk about it, but what they want to ultimately do with the degree. Yeah. Um, Ideally, the, the PhD, and, and there's a big difference between a PhD and other terminal degrees, like a doctor of ministry um, degree. PhD is an academic degree. And so think less in terms of how this is going to help me be better at leading a Bible study or leading my small group and more in terms of what I'm contributing to scholarship. And if that question doesn't interest you, then you're probably not interested in a PhD. Yeah, that's really helpful. Yeah, it's a helpful way, I think, to to process it and think through it. And do you have a particular leaning on whether you recommend to students uh, taking more of the European approach or the American approach or any just personal preferences there? Um, it, I, I think there's room for both. Yeah. Um, it, it really, and, and even the, the American approach there, there sort of is no longer a one size fits all. Right. You're doing your degree at Midwestern and I have some familiarity with that. And that's, that's not typical for an American degree program. Right. Uh, you, you would get a very different experience if you went to Duke mm-hmm. uh, or to Princeton or to Yale or the University of Chicago or some of these other schools. And not just because of the confessional standards, yeah. but because of the, just the nature of the pedagogy. So um, in that respect, it, again, it would come down to the student. Right. But if there was a student who said that they really just they don't know what they want to do, they just really want to lean into scholarship very hard. Um, I would say to think, think about your topic and think about who you want to study with. Yeah. Um, and that really is a good guiding principle. Um, a, a good supervisor is going to make you read broadly and, be, and, and is going to hold your feet to the fire very carefully before you get to the dissertation stage. So uh, to answer your question, yeah. no, I don't lean one way or the other, <laughs> yeah. uh, because it largely depends on what the student wants to accomplish uh, with a degree and um, what kind of supervisor they're looking for. Sometimes students just say, I want to get the degree. Uh, it doesn't really matter what I study or who I study with and that sort of thing. And, and that, that's fine. Right. Um, in that sense, the, what, what school you go to is less important. Sure, sure. One of the things we hear about often on here is the importance of networking as you're getting established in the field and making contacts maybe with someone you want to study with or um, someone who you share a research interest with. Just any best practices for PhD students who might be making that initial contact to an advisor or to someone they want to study under for a couple of years? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, there's a studying under somebody there. I, I find that professors are, are pretty open. Yeah. Again, we're talking about I, I work 
primary, I work in, I've worked for evangelical institutions, but most of my scholarship is with, is dialogue with non-confessional and non-evangelical. Yeah. So, but even in that field, I, I find that, that um, professors are very approachable and very accessible um, for inquiries. I, I think one of the things that students need to be really aware of is that it, it gets the most out of your inquiry with a professor for you to have some idea of the lay of the land before you come to the professor. Mm. So if you just say, Hey, I want to do a PhD. I want to do it under you because I really like what you wrote in something, but otherwise you don't know anything about Pauline scholarship on, on, on uh, apocalyptic Paul and the recent discussion. Um, you're not showing that you're, you're not making the best use of your inquiry to say, where do I go from here? And the supervisor is, is going to recognize that pretty quickly and you're not going to get very far. So make sure you've read up a little bit on a field and, and you're ready to ask the right kinds of questions before you make an approach to somebody making an inquiry about, I don't know what to study. What should I study? Those are things that you can ask the professor you're with now. Right. Um, rather than the professor that you want to study with. Yeah. Uh, and the professor you're with now can help you to orient yourself to here. Here are six books on Paul you need to read before you're ready to really think about this. Mm, yeah. Um, so, yeah, that's good. Uh, as you talk to maybe for the, the newly minted Ph.D. or the student who's about to finish their dissertation, as they think about those first few years of trying to establish uh, themselves as a scholar in the community, where would you encourage them to put their focus in those first handful of years? Um, I, I think the first handful of years, uh, you're going to be right. You're going to be teaching mm. and you're hardly going to be able to, especially if, again, in my context, you're going to come out of a PhD with a, with a flooded market um, that you're going to struggle to find a job. If you get a job, you're going to be teaching eight classes a year uh, at a, at a, at a Christian undergraduate school. And you're not going to have much time to do much of anything you're probably going to be paying off loans and everything else and trying to raise a family. So um, I, I would say focus first and foremost on doing your day job and getting it done well. Yeah. Um, and knowing, knowing that the first three to five years, you're just going to be trying to get on your feet and keep your head above water. You're going to be preparing lectures the day before you're giving the teaching the class. Yeah. Um, and, and that's just, that's just the reality of it. So uh, have a research plan, make a, have a research agenda, try to publish where you can. Uh, but for the most part, recognize that that part of your career is, is not going to be a front burner issue for the very beginning. And, th- yeah. and that's perfectly normal. The difficulty is because the market is so flooded with PhDs, you, you need to distinguish yourself in terms of some kind of publication. Mm-hmm. So that's where getting your dissertation published and ideally published in a good peer review um, uh, with a good peer review publisher, Cambridge University Press, Library of New Testament Studies with Chris Keith or uh, Novum Testamentum with Brill or something like that is going to be important. Yeah. Yeah. I always love to end on this. And I'm just curious, as you look at uh, your own uh, field over the next handful of years, maybe your particular research interest, what are a few of the conversations you're most excited to be a part of in the next three to five years? Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there are a few things. One is the, in Mathean scholarship in particular, there is an increased discussion on the relationship between Matthew and contemporary Judaism. Mm. 
part that that discussion is Matthew a Jewish document or is it not a Jewish document has been is an old discussion, but really with with advances in Second Temple Judaism that there's a lot more of a clear nuance to bringing that to to what what do we mean by Jewish and what what do we mean by inside or outside or are those parameters even useful anymore? Mm. Um, and part of that is and these are discussions that I'm kind of in the midst of right now, so that's why yeah. I've been thinking beyond them is a little bit of a challenge also thinking about um integrating um new testament scholarship within the realm of second temple judaism from doing that massive encyclopedia i'm doing another book right now co-editing with lauren stokenbrook on um sort of bringing conversations forward Mm. if you have a single volume where there are archaeologists writing on uh, capernaum and um literary critics writing on uh you know the the book of james uh, how how do those two things methodologically, can they work together? Can they bring about some constructive dialogue and not just a silo effect of archaeologists do archaeology, literary theorists do literature? Can there be something constructive and robust in bringing those conversations together um, to, to not to water down specialization, but to bring a, a, broad, a degree of uh, integration that is still in a historical kind of setting? For, for New Testament scholarship. So bringing some of those things more to the front burner in, in conversations in New Testament scholarship, I find to be uh, pretty exciting. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that sounds fantastic. We look forward to that volume. And uh, Dr. Gertner, thank you for your time today. Uh, anything you'd like to let people know about before we wrap up? Uh, well, the one thing I would always say, and this, again, this, this is very personal, what's what's really motivating in my scholarship. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an evangelical Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I worship and serve the risen Lord and my scholarship is really motivated for the Lord. And one of the things that I've really learned to do over the years is that, I mean, if you look at my publications, you look on Amazon or Google or whatever, I'm not writing the pastor's handbook for how to interpret the gospels. I'm doing more technical kind of stuff for the academy and that it really is, it's very possible. And I, I think there's a place there's certainly a place for people writing for the church's consumption. So mm-hmm. scholars who are writing, my, my former colleague, Tom Schreiner does this all the time, writes things that pastors are using and is extremely helpful for pastors. But I, my, my scholarship is written for the church, but for the church's benefit and not for the church's consumption. Mm. So there is a place in scholarship, even as a confessing evangelical, to be writing for the church, but not necessarily writing for the church pastor to be using on Sunday morning, Yeah, but writing for the church's benefit. So the scholarship that I try to do is finding its way into the highways and byways and, and various kinds of influences and that, that are going to benefit pastors, maybe not next week, but maybe next year yeah. or in five years or 10 years. So just to encourage people who are thinking about their own scholarship and thinking about their own field and how to make a niche for themselves, there there's a really wide variety of options out there that doesn't you don't need to be the next so and so you you can right. be your own self and make your own contribution and still make a contribution to the church and to the kingdom of god no that's really good and i think that distinction is super helpful and uh, dr gertner again thank you for your time and thanks to all of you for listening to this latest episode of on biblical scholarship again you can hear every episode on itunes spotify wherever you get your podcast Hit that subscribe button, make sure you rate and review the show, and we'll see you again next week.